0: Yesterday, I introduced the village of Somier where i 've been working with Dico Madeleine for the last eighteen years. I gave a brief introduction to some of the anthropological presidents in the field of life writing, and it is that this theme that i 'm going to concentrate on today, considering in more detail some of the precedents for what i 'm going to be doing myself in the weeks to come. So next week I'm going to take a far more detailed look at the Manbilla material under consideration. In this lecture I shall survey some of the different types of biography and autobiography that are available to us as anthropologists and as Africanists. Then I will consider in slightly more detail one prominent example, the case of Nisa by Marjorie Shostak. From there, I shall introduce two ways of approaching life history texts, from the point of view of their production and the point of view of their reception, by thinking about their writers and their readers. And um, finally, in anticipation of next week's lecture, I give a brief introduction to the conversations in Somia itself. Which have led me to focus on Deco and her life. But um, to begin, I want to look at three epigraphic quotations which serve to frame today's discussion. Um, I can put at least two of them on the screen. First, structured preconditions do not, of course, explain personal psychology. The delicate chemistry between the individual and his or her social context can never be reduced simply to that of social context. At the same time, however, individual psychology is a profoundly historical phenomenon, the product of multiple determinations which, in the final analysis, shape the forms and meaning of experience. That's schuler marx Then more or less legible, as a medium of self-representation, more generally, life histories bespeak a notion of the human career as an ordered progression of acts and events, of biography as history personified, history as biography aggregated, of the biographical illusion. Bourdieu calls it a modernist fantasy about society and selfhood, according to which everyone is potentially in control of his or her destiny in a world made by the action of autonomous agents. It is this fantasy that leads historians to seek social causes in individual action and social action in individual causes, to find order in events by putting events in order. That's the Komarovs. And finally... Oh, I put them in the wrong order on this. Finally, we have Roxana Waterson's introduction to her biography of a prominent man from Taraja, Indonesia. And here she observes that we all tell stories about our lives, if only to ourselves. And indeed, our mental health depends on our ability to do so, so that our lives may have coherence. Without some coherent memory of the past, there's no basis on which to act today. The forms which such stories can take, however, are so varied that we would do better to think of multiple genres arranged in a continuum of which the life histories elicited by ethnographers are just one rather peculiar kind. At the least formal end of this continuum may be found what psychological researchers have termed life stories, fragments of oral discourse or personal storytelling told in different ways for different audiences, and sometimes purely for the purpose of entertaining. At the most formal end I published biography and autobiography. So, as I say, these quotes act to um, define some of the discussion for today. I want to start then by considering some of the precedents. Some of the illustrious models and exemplars that have been published over the last century or more of anthropological writing. Some of these, but by no means all, discuss the techniques they employed for uh, obtaining their data. How it was recorded, transcribed and translated. But others give only the ethnographic background with nothing about the way in which the texts have been constructed. This poses a problem for a critical reading. Collingwood, in his autobiography, raises a parallel concern. One cannot, and I'm now quoting, one cannot find out what a man means simply by studying his spoken or written statement, even though he has spoken or written with perfect command of language and perfectly truthful intentions. In order to find out his meaning, you must also know what the question was a question in his own mind and presume by him to be yours, to which the thing he has said or written was meant as an answer. Keesing provides an anthropological example of this. His text gives Elota's words without providing any information about what elicited them. Perhaps in the Quaiot case this is reasonable. There's a Quaiot tradition of public oratory in which Elota was adept, and Kiesing in his introduction, makes it clear that, as a respected senior, he was one of the key figures responsible for transmitting the lessons of the past to future generations. Yet, such lessons need not be in the form of stories about the speaker. And certainly, we are given no information about how unusual Quoio found this mode of discourse. It's not just Keesing's voice that has been edited out, we can only guess at how difficult it was for Keesing to elicit these stories or how much editorial work he has had to do to produce the book. The book successfully conveys a sense of the man from the combination of Keesing's glowing testimonial in the introduction and the later sections which are Elota's own words translated and lightly annotated but I would have liked more information about the conversations from which the published extracts are taken. All we are left with is the reflection that, I quote, the framework of custom within which Quayo live is intricate, but not rigid. We shall see in a Lotus story that to be human there as here is to follow strategies, to make choices, to explore paths, not simply to follow rules. Well, these are fine words indeed, but Keesing does not help us disentangle the choices he has made or to explore the editorial paths he has taken in presenting a Lotus story. A better example, a contrasting example, is Renato Rosaldo's account of the life of Tukbo. He's a longer landlord, mentor and friend. As Rosaldo put it, sometimes life histories just happen. You find that after the fact that what you you have done is collected the material for a life history in the course of doing other things, while being told how to behave, being told off, or just while chatting at the end of the day. The anthropologist then tries after the fact, and when not with the person concerned, sometimes in fact after their death, to write out the life history, an exercise that can resemble a jigsaw puzzle as much as a biography. Rizal, though, unlike Kiesing, gives some explanation of how Tukbohr's life history came to be written. He introduces the biography by explaining, quote, how I came almost by accident to collect Tukbo's life history, as he told it. This is more than a matter of intellectual scrupulousness on my part. My conviction is that anthropological life histories are stories told to a particular person which inevitably reflect this personal relation. To assess and interpret properly the content of a life history, one must know something of both the speaker and the listener. Taken together, the generic life cycle and the story of how the life history was collected provide background for the lengthy verbatim extracts from Tukbohr's narrative. These extracts are ordered chronologically from infancy through adulthood rather than in the order collected. That's reordering, and that's the end of the quote, that reordering is significant and we shall return to it, but in the light both of the Komarov's comments and that of Watterson, with which we started. I now want to survey, in my survey I want to concentrate more on biographies from Africa the earliest biographies from Africa are those of slaves and former slaves they were written in Europe, in the Americas and in Africa itself in a period that spans 1772 to the present day. The earliest examples are slave and ex-slave narratives. They were part of the anti-slavery movement and missionary (coughs) endeavour usually combined together so, for example, Swemer's story, first published in 1870, and the Zanzibar princess Emily Ruete, born Salme, which was first published in Germany in 1886. Now, many of these examples, these early examples, are conversion narratives. And a critical, very important collection was collected by Elise Kutz-Kretschmer in East Africa. Marcia Wright describes her as missionary and ethnographer. Importantly for us, she was a member of the Moravian Church, for which, as Wright puts it, the Moravian view of spiritual progress involved the entire career of a member who was encouraged to write his or her autobiography to demonstrate the working of the Lord. As a consequence, we have narratives from the beginning of the 20th century which have preserved the opinion of some people from East Africa of whom otherwise we would know nothing. And significantly, Scratchmer recorded these life histories in the vernacular. So, although the stories were affected by the problems of hand transcription, they were not originally beset by the problems of translation. Sadly for us, most of the original texts were lost during the First World War, when Kutz Kretschmer was in detention. Those narratives were collected in the context of the colonial imposition of the end of slaving within Africa, and it is salutary to read this alongside Audrey Richards on the Bemba, since Bemba were enthusiastic slavers of neighbouring groups from whom the Moravians found converts, although, of course, that is to um, gloss over a huge complicated um, set of issues about um, ethnonyms and who the who BEMBA really are. Um, then we have more complex documents, such as those in Ten Africans, edited in, by Marjorie Perham in 1936. In her introduction, she discusses the explicit purpose of the collection, to introduce European readers to some individual Africans to individualise the colonised and subjugated masses, my terms, not hers. She notes then, I did no more than offer a few tentative suggestions as to the lines upon which the narrator should be guided if guidance should prove possible without injury to the spontaneity of his subject. The African should be encouraged to sketch the main events of his life, should be coaxed to explain any customs which he might otherwise regard as, requ- as requiring no explanation. Should refer to the coming of the Europeans if that event seemed to interest him and <clears> should be invited to philosophise a little at the end if philosophy seemed to come naturally to him. There are two women included among the ten. One is written by Aina Aina uh, Moore, the first Nigerian woman to go to Oxford University. Actually, um, I, thanks to the internet, I can add the sad notes that she died on the 15th of May, 2002. Uh, her text tells us more about Oxford in the 1930s and how she came to get there than her early life in Nigeria. The other included in that collection is Nusenti a senior Hosea woman and this was recorded by monica hunter transcribed and translated might be more accurate it's a classic as told to a form or literary or, or literary genre that is true of many more autobiographies than it may seem both recently published ghostwritten autobiographies as i mentioned in my lecture yesterday and other early exercises in Autobiographies. Autobiography. One of my favourite examples is the celebrated is that of the celebrated African American frontiersman Kit Carson, whose book Kit Carson's Autobiography was a bestseller when first published in 1926. It's now catalogued as having two authors: Milo Milton Cafe and Kit Carson. For indeed, as Arnold Kruppett tells us, Carson was illiterate. Um, Then, more recently published is something called Life Histories of African Women. And although it dates from 1988, it's oddly reminiscent of ten Africans. Only two authors mention in passing the conditions of the collaboration which produced the published text. So, Enid Schildkraut says, I spent many hours in Husayna's home. In the course of these visits, I taped many conversations with Husayna in which we discussed the neighbourhood children and various aspects of marriage, childbearing and child raising. While I did not intend to write a biography of Husayna, in the course of these interviews, many facts about her life emerged. And um, similarly, Anne Cassier in the same collection says, our friendship grew, and Marsha began to tell me about her life, her parents, where she came from, her own family. At first it was just woman talk, but as I became deeply interested in her story, I began to take notes and ultimately use a tape recorder. Then from South Africa, there are some celebrated examples, such as Rebecca Reyes' Zulu Woman, the Life Story of Christina Shibaya, which was first published in 1949. Joubert's The Long, His Long Journey of Poppy Nongenna, and McCord's The Calling of Katie McCannier. The last of these makes a fascinating contrast with Barbara of Caro because the shared biography, the shared history of McCord and McCannier, for which there is no parallel between Smith, the author of *Baba Caro, and *Baba*. Margaret McCord is the daughter of a South South African doctor who employed Katie McCannier late in her career. Earlier, she had been part of the mission-based African Native Choir, which toured England in 1891, and she actually performed in in front of Queen Victoria, although, as far as I can work out, no what cylinder recordings were either made or survive, um, but because Casey McCannia was, was working in the um, in the hospital that um, Dr. McCord ran, she knew Margaret when Margaret was young, and that early relationship was the basis of their um, working together to produce the book. There's an interesting postscript to this. According to Margaret McCord, the interviews on which the book were based were sound recorded. But in 1954, when those interviews took place, tape was so expensive that she transcribed each conversation after it took place and then reused the tape. So the actual recordings have not survived. I now want to turn to Marjorie Jostak's book, Nisa, which I think is probably the best-known example of an anthropological life history. I made some comments on it in yesterday's lecture, which I'll now expand upon, and there's one little beginning of a paragraph which is the same. *Mambela* are very different from Kung. Nisa is very different from Diko. The differences exemplify much theory of biography and autobiography, and critically, Mambila do not talk about sex in the way that Kung do. Although extramarital affairs are common in Mambila, as in many societies, it's my impression they are not discussed, even with confidants, in the way that Kung women not only Nisa to discuss them with Shostak. In my opinion, the differences of culture and age are more significant than the difference of sex, although that too has its role to play. There are occasions when it's possible for foreign male anthropologists to talk to manbilla women about sex um, and although I've not talked dirty with DECO, then at least I've had an opportunity to talk very frankly about sexual matters but for manbilla of both sexes adultery is a serious matter and people do not talk about it lightly or usually at all nor really do Mambilla people talk about themselves in the way that Nisa did to Shostak and that's where the Komarovs' point comes in. And I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. In the beginning of Nisa, Shostak gives a short extract from a conversation she had with Bay, an old Kung woman, in which they circle around each other and got nowhere. And this, I think, will be familiar to many of you. Shostak contrasts the 50-year-old Nisa with Bey, age 75, who was... Then, the oldest woman in the camp, she quotes her conversation with Bay, which conveys, I think the frustration of working with informants who miss the point of what one is about. Some people to whom i 've shown or read the passage also say it reminds them of generic problems of young people talking to those much older and i 'll give you a short ex well, a, an extract of this to give you some of the flavor. I hope you 'll be able to follow the um, changing. Voices, I'm not going to try and do voices. Bay, won't you tell me about the things you still remember? Yes. I certainly remember many things from my childhood. I am old, I have experienced much. You ask me about something and I'll tell you about it. Good. Tell me about the things your mother and father did. Fine. They brought me up, gave me food. I grew and grew and then I was an adult. That's what they did. Do you remember any specific time? Maybe when they did something wonderful or perhaps something you didn't like. You are asking me very well. Parents sometimes help children and sometimes scold them. Bay, we are talking very well together. I know you are old and have experienced many things. Yes, we are talking very well. You keep asking me and I'll keep telling you. I am old, I know many things. I am asking you, but I cannot tell you what memories to speak about. Only you know what you've experienced. Try to tell me something your parents or siblings did, or what happened when you menstruated, when you married or had children, or about your family, your co-wife, your husband, anything you like. Only it has to be about you. Yes, we have already talked about my mother and my father and how I ruin things. Now ask me about other things and I will tell you. I am old, I know. These are the women, the children, they still haven't taught themselves. I've seen a lot, I really know. You ask me and I'll tell you. And so it goes on. Now, this has not really exactly been my experience with DECO. But I think many ethnographers and others who have attempted to collect oral histories will recognise the experience. Readers should note that Marjorie Shostak started working with Nisa in the late 60s, and some of her topics were an explicit response to feminism. At that date, Nisa was about 50, Shostak in her late 20s. By contrast, Dee was in her 70s when I started working with her in my late 20s. Now, she's turned 90 and I've turned 40. Um, Shostak attributes the problems of her conversation with Bay. To age. I'm sure that's correct. I'm sure that's a very important issue. But there's problems also relate to the source of self perception that leads one to make a narrative out of one's life, one's own life. And it's that that the Komarovs and and Watterson allude to in opposing ways, in, in the quotations with which I started especially in societies without literate traditions, many, perhaps most people, do not do this. Manbilla certainly do not. To ask someone for the story of their life presumes that lives are or can be cast as stories. And this isn't the case in Manbilla. And the conversations that I had with Diko, I have had with Diko, and which in 1993 I prompted Sondway to have, with her are and remain artificial and somewhat strained so the Komoros, you know, summarise that with their slogan biography is anything but innocent they continue to question the cultural and historical specificity of biography resting as it does on the conceit that individuals control their own destinies they warn against an ethnocentric imposition of western models of life history this echoes some of Watterson's concerns without recognising her more general psychological point that some coherent memory of the past is required in order to act in the world. Perhaps the important point is about the degree and the quality of the coherent order in which our memories are organised. I take the Komarov's counsel not as one to desist from life history but to proceed with caution. To continue the exercise conscious of their warning. Their cautions are general and apply to readings of Nisa and South African life histories as well as to Diko's life story. To return to my considerations of Nisa, Marjorie Shostak also worked on a filmed biography of another Kung woman, Nye Shortface, the film Nye, the story of a a Kung woman, was released in 1980 and was made by John Marshall with Patricia Draper as the field anthropologist, based on Shostak's work. Shostak is also credited in the film as helping the translations. Now, Nye was one of Shostak's other interviewees, one of the many other women apart from Nisa that she talked to. As Wilmson makes clear, she was part of the group of families that had been most closely involved with the Marshalls and had reaped the material benefits of this to the anger or jealousy of others. Her life is significantly different from Nisa. Most importantly, she had a stable marriage, although she reports having lovers early in the marriage before she and her husband had matured into their ongoing relationship. What's noteworthy here is the way that Nye's storytelling contrasts with, resembles, and complements Shostak's rendition of Nisa's. It makes me feel more confident about Nisa <coughs> that um, Shostak's editorial intervention was somehow less significant than one could imagine from reading her text alone. That sense of confidence is increased by other works by Patricia Draper, In 1987 and 1988, she made a series of life history interviews with senior um, Kung men and women, some of whom she had known from her original research in the late 60s. She she was a contemporary of Marjorie Shostak. The published report of the research focuses on the experience of change among five women. There is talk of sex, lovers, and the way of telling is familiar to anyone who knows Shostak's book. Draper is concerned with social change, with sedentarisation and intermarriage with Herero and Tuana Pastoralists. So she's arranged her published text along thematic lines. This leads to a point made by James Clifford when he discusses Nisa in his book on ethnographic allegory. He says that we are given no idea of how Nisa told her stories in the series of interviews with Marjorie Shostak. Granted the many conversations that occurred between them, Shostak was faced with no small editorial task when she came to write the book we know today. She organised it around a classical chronological armature, presenting stories from Nisa's life at different stages in a chronological sequence, not in the order that they talked about them. And that, of course, is... The point that um, Rosaldo made when talking about his autobiography, his biography of Tukpo, that he had to reorganise them in uh, chronological sequence. We can only speculate whether or not that's how Nisa chose to talk. Shostak's papers have not been archived yet, um, and so we don't know. Uh, they, I have tracked them. I tracked down someone who actually is sitting on them and one day they will be archived, so we will be able to ask that question. To be fair, Clifford himself remarks that the author is faced with an impossible task. Either one must follow the speaker and the rambling conversations at issue, or you must accommodate what are, in effect, Western literary conventions in order to produce a book which is readable. And one of the wonderful things about NISA is how readable it is. There is no straightforward way of doing both. Now, to some extent, I think the internet provides something of a solution. One can post on the web source material, making it available for the curious and those from the community at large who want to to access the material with less mediation from the anthropologist. This means I can satisfy my sense of empirical responsibility and still feel free to recast the words spoken and the sequence of topics in ways which will be, I hope, comp- comprehensible to the audience. Another set of contrasts between Dico and Nisa concerns the intellectual backgrounds to the research. Shostak was part of the Lee and Devore Kalahari Hunter-Gatherer Research Project, which took place throughout the 1960s. The project was explicitly interdisciplinary, but was self-consciously interested in contemporary hunting and gathering groups as providing information about the social forms and ways of life in prehistory, for all its explicit recognition of change in the 20th century with the advent of Swano and Herero pastoralists. Much of the research took a positivistic approach to many aspects of social life, and this research form the background to Shostak's work and her book. It's that background that has been so fiercely attacked by revisionists, such as Wilmsland, in the great hunter-gatherer debates of the 1990s. Shostak set out to answer a very different set of questions, and especially to understand how they felt about their lives. Yet, perhaps, she was asking too much. In Britain, as well as in Somnese, Sometimes I feel unable to answer the question of how I feel about my own life and how, how I, I, I feel unable to answer that question of for myself or even for those close to me, let alone for others. Um, and perhaps this feeling of doubt was uh, reinforced by attending a school reunion when meeting some middle-aged strangers who 20 years before had been among my closest friends. But anyway, that's a digression. In part, Shostak was reacting against the positivism of Leanne de Boer's work. The intellectual climate in which she worked was very different from that in which Lila Abu-Lugod was writing only 12, um, only 12 years later. Influenced by Clifford and other anthropological postmodernists as well as feminist theorists, Abu Lugod sought to write against culture. She identified several problems with the concept of culture, but especially its homogenising effects and the way that talking of a culture reduces or perhaps denies the agency of its members. Both Abu Lugod and Shostak have had to find a path between problems of generalisation, we are all one, and conflicting problems of particularism. No one else can share my experience, which very quickly becomes a form of solipsism. Abu Lugard's solution is to concentrate on storytelling, on the individual storytellers, and to refuse to append the conclusion with the closure that that gives. The book finishes the lives of the people do not. For Abu Lugard, like Dilthi before her, an individual can only be understood in a social context. Yet that context can be communicated and approached by starting with some exemplary individuals. As Abu Lugard says, attending to the particulars of individuals' lives need not imply disregard for the forces and dynamics that are not locally based. The effects of extra local and long term processes are always manifested locally and specifically. This is in close accord with work such as that of Schuller Marx in South Africa, who has used a collection of letters exchanged between three women in the first half of the 20th century to present those women as unique individuals living in circumstances not of their making, to quote the other Marx. Um, As Schuller Marx says, the correspondence moves us beyond the aridity of an unpeopled political economy to the ambiguities of everyday life. Yet through it, we can see the overarching constraints of social structure on human agency, the complex relationship of individual psychology with a culture-bounded social order. If what is precious in her material is the personal and the idiosyncratic, it's nonetheless possible through them to show that the private lives, even the obsession of individuals, far from being simply psychological quirks or even aberrations flow directly from the social situation of these individuals. And when discussing Kutz Kretschmer's work, which I mentioned earlier, Marx makes the same point. Undiluted personal narratives have a power of their own, not to be usurped by analysis. In the interpretation of such texts, history claims a place beyond mere elucidation. As i said already, the internet provides a means to address and overcome part of the impossible dilemma posed by Clifford. Via the web, I can provide an analytical summary of the transcripts to give a sense of the flow of conversation, how one topic flowed into another on the original tapes, and This could be used by a critical reader to reveal my editorial input to, as it were, um, lay bare some of the mechanism of my writing. To consider but a um, small sample here, let me give a, show you a summary of just one bit. This is one, a, a kind of analytical summary of one 45-minute, one side of one tape. And it, started, it starts with the quarrel which I summarised in yesterday's lecture, which I'll discuss in more detail a week today, next, next Wednesday. So it starts with the quarrel between Chief Gonarkar and his wives, Diko among them, and that leads to Deco hiding in the bush. From there they moved to talking about women's work, since the quarrel was about women's work. But they moved straight to talking about the growing of sorghum, milling it for beer and porridge. Then it's use in rituals. Mbeza pouring um, beer on graves and dama, uh, which is a ritual closing the village to, to evil and um, invoking good things to come to the village. Then, get to one of these kind of classic plaints of the old, how traditional patterns of communication between the gen- generations and genders have broken down. For example, how girls now continue, a- continue to date other boys, even once they are engaged. <coughs> then, how other taboos are being broken, how the regular rituals to protect the village are not being performed. And Children do not obey their parents. Then, history. Talk about different subgroups of the population of Somi village. The Indaba from down here, the Umvop from up there. And finally, on this side of the tape, how did the chief divide meat up among his wives, And that, that question got answered on the next tape. You recall that in yesterday's lecture, I commented that when the account of the quarrel was over, the talk moved on. Sondre Michel, who was asking the questions, was satisfied with the conclusion, although I would not have been, I, I, and I was not, what happened, and the summary kind of hints at this, they went from the proximate cause of the quarrel, Konaka interfering with Diko's management of the labour of the chief's wives, to discussing that labour in general. And to my mind, they did that without discussing how the quarrel was re- resolved. And that's what I had to do by asking to sort out by asking more questions. Now, when considering life histories, when considering texts or transcribed conversations as the raw material for an anthropological analysis, it's helpful, I believe, to conceive of approaching the texts twice. First, as literary analysts, second, as anthropologists. In reality, of course, we do both together, but the conceit of a separation helps an initial consideration of the issues concerned. The production composition approach concentrates on the who, how, where, why, and when of the creation of the texts. The anthropological approach asks ethnographic questions of the resulting texts, and this can lead to a a set of worries of general concern for anthropology about representativeness. Such concerns are general to anthropology, whether or not it uses life history or case studies. Much ethnographic research revolves around the consideration of single or rare events. Their their use as the basis for the exploration of wider social phenomena. An approach of methodological pluralism in which different sorts of data can triangulate provides a robust solution but to explore this further would take me too far into general issues of anthropological method. I want to try and stick to life histories. One solution to the concern of representativeness in life histories is to use what Kruppat calls collectivised autobiography. I'm tempted to gloss it as autobiography via focus group. He discusses, I mean, he he worked on um, Native American um, um, autobiography and life histories. He discusses McWhorter's collaboration with Yellow Wolf, who told his life history to McWhorter in front of witnesses who corroborated and corrected the narrative. It's a variety of laying bare the mechanism of composition, bearing the device. To a large extent, my tapes and their transcripts can serve the same function. The discussions between the different people in the original conversations can reveal their shared understandings, hence enabling me to generalise beyond the one person at the focus of my concern. So, for example, when Dico finished telling the story of her quarrel with Konaka, which I summarised in yesterday's lecture, Sondwe, to whom she was telling the story, recognised it as a as having been completed. He moved on to talk about women's labor in general. Looking at the transcript, listening to the tape, I, as anthropologist, want to know more. I particularly want to know more about its conclusion, how Conacher's mother intervened. But Sondre recognized the finishing point. So there's intersubjective warrant that a manbilla conclusion was communicated. And at one level, that must be enough for me as analyst. I've then spent years trying to tease out what that understanding was of which more in the lectures to come. Some of these issues have been discussed by Belinda Bozzoli, who presents an account of women's lives in Fukang in the Transvaal, primarily based on interviews in the Setswana language (laughs) by a local interviewer, uh, Nkotswë. She came from the village next door to Fokeng, which both Nkotsué and her interviewees refer to. The interviews were conversations by locals in the local language. Vazoli comments, In these conversations, it becomes clear that what is formally recorded is informed and indeed inspired by what is not. Many of the insights these interviews give us are not derived from any clear-cut or formalised set of interview questions, nor are they insights that any interviewer administering the same set of questions could have gained. Rather, they are a product of the unique formal and informal exchanges between this particular interviewer and her interviewees. Then, Bazzoli then continues to argue that these contingent specificities, making... The interviews, unrepeatable on the one hand, give them particular value and offer sources of insight, of generalisations. Nkotswe's local origins allow a particular type of interview to emerge, one rich in local detail, one which allows us to overhear interactions. This means that what is taken for granted between Nkotswe and her interviewee is often of as much significance as what is regarded as of Unusual and extraordinary value by both of them. The structure that both parties unconsciously a- attribute to the Baffigan society and the world around it is one that contains categories which are of, general in- of great interest to the sociologist. So, texts have been written. They are composed. A person picks up a pen and writes, or turns to the keyboard. How is the resulting text different from one in which one person speaks and another writes? Or if one person speaks to a translator who reports their words to a third person who writes, is this significantly different from the situation in which the translator and the scribe are one and the same? Is a text in which the first person narrator has been preserved by the transcriber essentially different from a biography in which the narrator's voice is sometimes heard. We are dealing with a complex hybridity, but actually I'd suggest no greater than that of ordinary literary composition. Indeed, perhaps the aspects of intertextual reference and authorial dispersion are easier to grasp here than in the conventional object of literary analysis, such as novels or um, or poems. Jean Davison neatly summarises the problem. Often, as in the life histories in this collection, the narrative is audiotaped, taped, then translated and transcribed into a form that is rendered meaningful to a reading audience outside the culture of the narrator. As a result, life history as a literary genre straddles autobiography and biography. Whereas a life history is recorded by an ethnographer and the transcribed text adheres to the informant's oral narrative, it approximates autobiography. However, once the ethnographer begins to rearrange or delete material found in the original transcription in order to clarify meaning for an external reading audience, the impress of a second person other than the original narrator is felt. In quite another context, John Murphy, discussing interviews with Australian veterans of the Vietnam War, summarises it thus, an oral autobiography is one in which the pattern of a person's life is drawn out mutually, despite brave attempts on the part of some oral historians to remain disengaged from the process. One can't remain disengaged in a dialogue. The pattern which emerges is mutual endeavour, and as I have argued, it has the organisation sorry, it has the organisational elements of metaphor. So whether we see it as metaphor, questioning activity, which is Collingwood's um, expression, negotiated co composition, or as I suggested in yesterday's lecture, silhouette, an anthropological life history is a hybrid one. And I think it is one that is complex in just the right sorts of ways. It's sensitive to the social context, to change, and to the wider factors which shape individual lives without losing sight of the individual interpretations and understandings through which humans make the worlds they live in. Um, how am I doing? Right. Okay. According to Arnold Kropat... Gilles Deleuze talks of the indignity of speaking for others. To my mind, this summarises in one pithy phrase much of what's wrong with postmodernism, and it's worth spending a little time exploring why this is so. Deleuze combines a crippling concern for others with blatant self-contradiction in the application of his dictum, since it applies less to himself than to others. He speaks for others in condemning those who speak for others. Taken seriously, and perhaps this is my mistake, he condemns us to a self regarding solipsism. I'd rather suggest that the human condition being a social one has as a direct consequence that all of us have no choice but to speak for others, and this is the basis of a pan human dignity. The postmodern mistake following from the so-called textual turn is a supremely academic mistake. It is to confuse different orders of indignity, misrepresentation and oppression. It blurs basic differences between insults, blows and slavery and I think is to be deprecated for this, all the more so as it claims the political high ground. Um, I want to close today by talking, going back to talking about Mambilla. and in a way um, anticipating the far more detailed ethnographic discussion which I'm going to move into next week. I want to give you an introduction to the recordings I've made. I've already shown you a summary of one conversation. Next week I'm going to talk far more about the village, the Manbilla people and Dico herself. But in anticipation of that, at the risk of jumping the gun, I want to say something about the research process and processes that have led me to make it, led to making the original tape recordings, which are the empirical bedrock of my lectures. Um, So, as I said yesterday, in part, um, I've been talking to Dico and her family for as long as I've been working in Sommiers. In mid-1985, when I first arrived, I was living in a house actually owned by Deco's daughter, which was tr- some 20 metres away from Deco's house. And slowly through my first year, I began to, I came to know her, partly through one of her grandsons, Jonas Kuhn, who early on was one of my language teachers. It was only later that I realised what an important person she was. To begin with, she was one of the few older people who would tolerate for any length of time the banality of a linguistic simpleton. Later, she became an important informant for me on the history and traditions of the village she 's a significant person for me, both in her own right and as an informant. The two things are not the same thing some Significant and knowledgeable people do not want to talk to anthropologists. Others do, but find it hard to explain to cultural dullards. And in a way, the conversation with Bay, which I quoted earlier, exemplifies this. On the other hand, some, like Deco manage to juggle the profundity of their knowledge and their ability to explain. Not everyone is a natural teacher and... We're lucky when we find one. For all our long background of talking to each other, when I finally tried to sit down with her and start working on her life history, I found that the conversation quickly reduced to something that resembled the talk between Shostak and Bay far more than what I'd been hoping for, which perhaps was Marcel Griot and Tomelli. As a way out of that impasse, I then tried something that I had long been considering. I asked saint Michel to go by himself to see Dico and to tape their, their um, conversations so that he and I could go through it afterwards. Um, the conversations that resulted have been the starting point for, the, for these lectures. And the, the tape recorder, in a way, was a surrogate for me when I asked Sandwey to go and see Deco, I gave him some indications of the sorts of things I wanted to learn about. He scribbled some notes on a scrap of paper, and occasionally these get referred to in the conversations. There's a pause when a conversational thread runs down. And Sandwey introduces a new topic using a third-person pronoun. For example, he wants to know how you met your husband. Having made the recordings, I listened to them. I went through them with um, Sondwe within weeks of the original recording being made. And I made notes as we listened. Several years passed in which I was thinking about the recordings, but I couldn't quite find a framework in which to use them. During this period, I continued to work with Sondwe, And since the Mambilla Literacy Project, which is coupled with a Bible translation, was getting underway... I encouraged him to learn to write Mambilla so I could give him work transcribing some of the, the recordings that I made. More recently, I've also commissioned a transcription of these recordings from Jiaba Daniel, who's another Mambilla who's very active in the literacy project, because what I wanted there was to get a, a different pair of Mambilla ears to listen to the same set of... of recordings to get, if you like, a different tr- view from the transcription. And so what I've been doing in writing these lectures is to correlate, collate the different transcriptions and my notes on the original one, plus the results of going back to Eco and asking her yet more questions about things that she originally talked to Sondray about more than 10 years ago. Um... But of that far more next week. I want to le- leave the last word in this lecture to Marjorie Shostak. In an important collection called Interpreting Women's Lives in which complicity and authorial complexity are discussed so much of the background to today's <laughs> lecture Shostak concludes thus It is for Shmuel Nisa and the silent others they represent, as well as for ourselves, that we should continue to record these lives and memories. The ethical and methodological problems may be formidable, but they are small compared to the goal. Indeed, the most important ethical message regarding life histories is not a restriction, but an obligation. We should make every effort to overcome obstacles to go out and record the memory of people whose ways of life often are preserved only in those memories and we should do it urgently before they disappear thank you